the other right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. You have a right to an attorney prior to or during any question. If you can't afford one, the court will appoint one for you. Do you understand your rights? This episode of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast may contain descriptions of acts of violence or that of a sexual nature and should be for people that are 18 years or older. Heed my warning, people. I do not get the facts of these cases off of the internet or for some television show. The facts I'm retelling you were presented to me by the victims of the crimes or the perpetrators who committed the crimes against the victims. My descriptions of the crime scenes, what I saw with my own two eyes. If you're going to get offended, please turn this podcast off now. Thank you. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast. And as always, I'm your host, Woody Overton. Wow, y'all. Today, I'm going to tell you a story I bet you you've never heard of about a serial killer, and I'm going to name it Louisiana's worst serial killer. And, you know, I thought I'd known of every major serial killer in our state. Um, this one was brought to me by Leah Marie, who's shout out to you, girl. You, you know, you continue to give me stories that no one's ever heard of. But it's just a, a absolutely horrific case and it dates all the way back to 1984 and I'm gonna try to tell you about some of the murders and 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 the case scenes and I'm fortunate enough to have the file stuff but just stick with me and you know warning this is just really 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 graphic let's go back to August 31st 1984 now there was a lady named Deborah Ford, who was a 25-year-old single mom who lived at 315 East 74th Street in the Cedar Grove area of Shreveport, Louisiana, y'all. Now, Shreveport is in the most northwestern corner of the state and the largest city in North Louisiana. So Deborah Ford, uh, I told you she was a single mom, and she had two daughters, Nikki who was nine years old, and Sean, who was five years old at the time. And they lived in a small shotgun-style home. And if you know, I don't know if shotgun-style homes are really anywhere else in the, in the United States. I, I never really paid attention to it or seen them. But in, in Louisiana, um, a shotgun home, and they're common. 
is it's a long, narrow house where you walk into the living room and you walk through a door in, into the kitchen area and then you walk into the back bedrooms. But it's a straight in the house and they call it a shotgun house because they say you can stand at the front door and take a shotgun and, and kill everything in the house with one shot. It's long and narrow, okay? Usually kind of in the poor neighborhoods, uh, uh, small houses, but long and straight. So the this, like I said, this really wasn't a, a very nice neighborhood, if you will. And Deborah Ford's house had been burglarized uh, several times before. Now, what does she do to try to curtail that? From, you know, from most burglaries happen when people aren't home, and most people don't realize that burglaries happen during the daytime. Um, now, like ninety five percent of them. It's a Ford guy called her dad after the after the last burglary happened. She's like, Dad, you know, what am I gonna do about this? And so her dad comes over, and the the back door of the house, he nailed it shut. Okay, so that's where people had been gaining entry because it couldn't be seen from the street or whoever was burglarizing it couldn't be seen from the street. So he nails the back door shut and he goes around the outside of the house and he nails the screens over all the windows. All right, so like you can't get the screen off and climb through the window. But on August 30th, 1984, Ford had taken her daughter shopping for school clothes with uh, Sean's father. Danny Ware. And they got home to the house on 74th Street at approximately 9.30 p.m. And Danny Ware and Deborah spoke outside the house and, you know, like a father and daughter will, right? And during that time, Nikki, the, the daughter, got a stuffed animal to take to her grandma's house where the kids were going to go spend the night. And when they were leaving the house, Nikki noticed that a bathroom window was open, and she closed it, right? And and she placed a wooden stick above, you know, and shut the window. You have the top part. You put the wooden stick on there so it can't be open from the inside, okay? Uh, uh, you know, but remember also that the screens were nailed shut from the outside. So the window didn't have any kind of lock to stop people from coming in other than the dad had nailed the screens on the outside to, to the wooden building. So, but you know, that stick is not a perfect uh, defense mechanism. If you want to get in, you can get in and you could shake the window real hard or jiggle it and make that stick fall down. So Danny Ware got the two girls and loaded up in the car and, and drove them over to the grandma's house. So Ford, uh, had neighbors and she was known in the neighborhood and the she was talking to a lady named Gussie Bell and her daughter Juanita Parks um, and then she quits talking to them and she goes in her house sometime right around 10 p.m. Now Michael Bell Gussie Bell's brother visited Ford in her home I don't know if they were dating or whatever but he goes over and hangs out with her to, for about an hour to around 11 p.m. And then Ford talked to a friend, Gregor Bell, three times between 8 p.m. and 12.30 a.m. And 
then she went to bed. Now, y'all, she slept on the couch in her house for whatever reason. That's what she did every night. Sometime between 12.30 a.m. and 8 a.m. on August 31st of 1984, a bad guy came and he pried the screen loose from the bathroom window and ripped it away. Uh, ripped it open, and then he was able to shake that window like I told you about and, and get that piece of wood to fall down, and then he slipped the window open, right? Uh, and when he climbed through, he had a piece of metal and he used to keep the window open, I guess in case he needed to make a quick escape, uh, and then he entered the house. Um, well, when he when he entered the house, he left a smudged, partial footprint in the bathtub right beneath the window and he knocked paint and debris and dirt into the bathroom from the window right so obviously the window wasn't used much and it, it was dirty um so when he did that shaking and he climbs through he knocks he knocks evidence in and he leaves his footprint um he goes in and he finds Deborah Ford on the couch and he attacks her, all right? And there was evidently a, a, a fight. Um, there was furniture that was knocked over, and the couch cushions were thrown about. Um, and the the bad guy cut an electrical cord from a box fan in the kitchen, and they used it to tie Ford's hands behind her back, okay? And... Later on, it was found out that Ford, you know, obviously, like I told you, they had fought, and she had bruised her hands trying to defend herself. But at some point, he gets the electrical cord from the kitchen, cuts it, and uh, he tied her hands behind her back. Now, this is very important, y'all, because this is the, the M.O. that this serial killer uses through all his, his murders. So he takes the cord. And he puts it around her left wrist and then loops it around her right wrist, which leaves a space in between, like a handcuff, you know, the, the, the metal box on the handcuff. And the loose end was tied to the cord on the left wrist, okay? Ford was then gagged with um, a shirt. And while she was bound and gagged, the bad guy stabbed her on the couch, right? And then he dragged her body to the floor where she was stabbed again. Then again and 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 again. She was stabbed. That's just in the chest. She was stabbed nine times in the chest. Then two more stab, stab on the left side of Ford's body and then Stab, 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 stab. Seven times on the right side, y'all. And some of the wounds uh, went so far in that they penetrated her lungs. Well, you know, you stab her that many times, you think she's dead, and the bad guy moves her body to the middle of the room, but he's not done. He then, and this... I don't even understand this, but he then cut her throat six times, sliced her throat six times from right to left, which cut through her jugular vein, 
intercarotid artery and her larynx and her esophagus. It, look, he cut her so deep, it was almost to her spinal column. And but despite the nine times he stabbed her in the chest and other stab wounds, Ford was still alive when he slit her throat the, uh, six times. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the terror? And and she fought, and she's tied up, and, and you stab this however many times, and then you slice your throat six more times all the way to the spinal column, and she ultimately died from the blood loss the, um, from the neck. And it was estimated that the attack to the time she died, y'all, 15 to 30 minutes. Figure that out. And God rest her soul and the terror that she must have gone through and the, the brutality of that attack. So around 8 a.m. the next morning, Brenda uh, Greggs walked over to use the, the telephone at Ford's house. Not remember y'all back in '84, there were no cell phones and all that. It was all landlines, and I'm guessing there wasn't a payphone in the neighborhood. But Brenda Greggs was friends with Ford, and she goes over to use the telephone, and she finds the front doors partially open, right? And she could hear music playing from a stereo. Well, she's like, hey, you know, where, where you at? Hello, hello. Remember, it's a small, straight shotgun house, and she ends up pushing the door open, and that's when she saw Ford on the ground of the living room wearing only her nightgown. But remember this. As, as important as the way her hands were tied in a certain way, the, um, Ford was wearing only her nightgown, but it was turned inside out. Okay? I mean, so Greg's freaks out, calls the cops, and they got there. And by the time they got there, it was a you know, small neighborhood. Everybody knows everybody. There was a, there was a crowd that was gathered. And... Yeah, they're watching the cops and they work the scenes and the, and the coroner comes in and, and uh, you know, and they look at it and they bag and tag her and, you know, they establish that. Uh, the There was a Dr. George McCormick who was the Caddo Parish coroner in Caddo Parish, y'all, is where Shreveport's located at. And remember, in Louisiana, we have parishes, not counties. And he determined that the crime scene was, or the murder uh, was the work of one person, and but it was a, clearly a signature crime. And he told the cops, said, listen, this is a work of a serial killer, and this dude's going to kill again. How did he determine this? Because he noted that there were four signature elements of the crime, okay? One being the bad guy's total control over the victim, Okay. That's that's common in serial killers. But two, he used a knife to both stab and cut. Very unusual. I remember stabbing is a very personal crime, but he not only stabbed her so many times, but then he slit her throat six times, okay? The third element that believed, made him believe it was a serial killer was the binding 
a, a, a four, right? The the with the electrical cord, but the, specifically the unique way that he did it, the the way that he tied it um, from left to right, and and where it was like a, a set of handcuffs. And Doctor McCormick said that the the killer was definitely right handed. So the you know the detectives or it's a small house. The detectives work it, and and they find three latent palm prints and a thumbprint on the bathroom window. Remember the the window was was still open, held open with this uh, piece of metal, and evidently the bad guy didn't climb, take the time to climb back out the window. He just went out the front door, and that's where the neighbor came over and, and heard the stereo. So, y'all, the palm prints, shit, and, and a thumbprint. Yeah, fingerprints are great, but palm prints are even better. And you have to have so many, uh, what they call ridges, so many identifying points uh, to even classify it as to one person. Well, these were clear, good palm prints, and uh, they were on the bathroom window, the windowsill, and inside the wall below the window. And the position of the prints over uh, consistent with someone opening the window from the outside and all well all three palm prints and the thumbprint were later used to identify the serial killer okay and that's that's one murder now remember the doctor said this is a serial killer and he's going to do it again well on July 19th 1985 just a few blocks from Ford's home in Shreveport at 213 East 72nd Street, there was a lady named Vivian Cheney who lived with her boyfriend, Billy Joe Harris, and also living in a house was Cheney's brother, Jerry Colbert, and her three daughters, Carlitha Colbert, Tamika Cheney, and Marla Cheney. Now, the Vivian Cheney and Caritha Colbert and Jerry Colbert were like slightly men- mentally handicapped, but Tamika and Marla Cheney were definitely mentally handicapped. Sometime between 11.30 p.m. on July the 18th, 1985, and 6 a.m. the next morning, the back door to the Cheney house was forced open. Now, Jerry Culbert and Billy Joe Harris and Carlitha Culbert and Vivian Cheney were all brutally murdered, y'all. Okay? Now, let me describe the, the scene to you. Uh, well, each of them were found in separate rooms, but the youngest girls, Tamika, who was 10 then, and Marla, 7, they, they were found alive and safe and uninjured. Let's go back to the crime scene. 29-year-old Billy Harris was killed in the front bedroom. He was shot twice in the left side of his head through a pillow. Now, why do you do that? You put the pillow over their head either so you, they can't see it coming um, or, you know, you surprise and put the pillow over her head and you put the pistol on there. And a lot of times killers will use the pillow also as a type of silencer. All right. But even after he, Billy Joe was shot twice in the head, he was also shot twice in the chest. Okay. It's bad, right? You're, you're sleeping, knocked out. Some guy comes in, puts a pillow on your head, shoots you twice in the head, and they shoot you twice in the chest. But even after being shot four times, y'all, he was still alive. What happens then? 
the killer slices his throat. Remember Ford's case, right? Throat slit six times. Yeah, but then the killer doesn't stop there. And they, they take Billy Joe Harris's hands. They tied him behind his back with shoelaces in his right, just like Ford, his right wrist was tied tightly, and then that loop was made for the left wrist in a hand, handcuff ligature. That's what they call it. But his ankles were also tied together with shoelaces. And just like in Ford's case, when they cut the, the box fan cord off to you know make ligature, uh, to tie her up, a telephone cord was cut in Billy Joe Harris's case, and it was used to tie his hands to his ankle, like hog time, y'all. And he was fully clothed, all right? Now, the killer proceeds to the house, and they find 25-year-old Jerry Culvert, and they shoot him and kill him, uh, shoot him once at close range in the left side of his head, but he was found in his bed, still in his bed clothes in the back bedroom of the house, and there was no sign of a struggle, and it, it, he was killed instantly, evidently, no signs of a struggle, and he didn't have any kind of lig- ligatures. He wasn't tied up or anything like that. Killer moves through the house, right, and gets to the living room. Well, in the living room, the 15-year-old uh, Carlitha Culvert was – sleeping and she's brutally attacked and, and she was found lying on her stomach again with her hands tied behind her back again with an electrical cord this time this electrical cord was cut from an iron that was found in the house and the cord was wrapped tightly around her left wrist and looped around her right wrist in that handcuff ligature like I told you about then the the electric cord, it, it looked like the killer tried to tie it around her ankles uh, as it, you know, if he wanted to hog tire like he did the other victims, but something must have happened. He got interrupted and he never did complete the hog time. But there was an untied piece of shoestring draped over her left leg and she had been uh, gagged with silver duct tape. And then guess what, y'all? Just like Ford. The shorts she was wearing were inside out. Okay? Now, it doesn't stop there. Her throat was also cut. And then her body was moved while she was still alive. And her throat was cut so deep, y'all, she, her head was almost cut off. She was almost decapitated. And there were two large pools of blood found by her body. Uh, one area of blood near her left knee had uh, a blotted semicircle, and a, and a second pool of blood was found by her neck where she finally bled to death. All right? Sounds similar, right? S- stick with me. Killer then goes to the next victim in the house, 37-year-old Vivian Cheney. And this is kind of strange, uh, um, but it still fits in. And she was found in the bathroom, slumped over the bathtub. Well, guess what? Her hands were tied behind her back with a cut telephone cord. Now, the cord came. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. 
But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Around the front of her waist and then down between her legs and tied her ankles. Um, what's important about this is, y'all, this was done where she could still move and be forced to walk it, it, even like you know, had to hop along or hobble along um it, it, she also had a mark on her neck where she had another ligature uh ligature that had been used to lead around like a dog chain right but it wasn't there anymore but it, it was there was enough evidence where you could see the mark on her neck and it was pulled tight and probably that they assumed that the killer was dragging her around like a dog and led her away from the rest of the murder scene, right? Uh, so on the back of Vivian's, Vivian's dress was a large amount of Carlitha's blood over the, over the butt area or the buttocks area and the lower hem of the dress, uh, uh, which... To the detectives, it, it, it told the, the story or indicated that Vivian had sat in the pool of blood caused by the um, the cutting of um, Carlitha's neck, right? So now, you, can you imagine the terror in here in this home? So far, he's gone in, he shoots one numerous times, one guy, then he goes to the back, he, he kills the other one while they're sleeping, then he goes to the living room and, and brutally murders the daughter, but there's evidence that he made the mama sit there and watch y'all and had her had her tied up and choked choked her down and he leads her to the bathroom. And that's why they they believe this because the the blood that was found on her nightgown when she's in the bathroom was that of her daughter's and remember there was there was a smudged area in the blood by Carlitha's neck. In Vivian's case, uh, there was evidence of both manual and ligature strangulation. She had been violently beaten about the head. So she had a lot of trauma to her head, but that's not what killed her, y'all. She died from a combination of the, of the strangling and bathtub drowning. So this dude goes in, does all this, but obviously he kills Vivian last but he makes her watch everything and it drags her through the home and ultimately I mean he beats her at beats her at her head and and violently but but he that I don't know what happens that the core that she he had around her neck but he was both choking her and he filled up the bathtub y'all he took the time to fill up the bathtub and he drowned her at the same time freaky right but yeah, if I'm the detective, I roll up on the scene. This is not that long after Ford's death. It clothes her inside out. The specific way the 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 victims are hogtied or hogtied and using that handcuff ligature, the slice in the throat and everything. I'm gonna be like, holy fuck, right? But yeah, certainly these two have to be related. But anyway, back to the crime scene. The the all these bodies were discovered 
at 6 a.m. on July 19th of 1985 by uh, Shirley Culbert, who's the sister of Vivian Cheney and Jerry Culbert. And she just happened to be coming into town for a surprise visit to the family, and she gets there at 6 a.m., knocks on the door. No answer, right? But what does she hear? She hears a stereo playing, just like never like Ford. Um, so she she you know she knocks, nobody answers, but there's stereo playing. It's six o'clock in the morning. Shit, this, this house full of kids and everything, right? And so she goes around to the back door and she tries a hand. Well, first of all, she knocks and and there's no answer either. She tries the. the uh, the handle and back then, you know, in in the mid eighties, shit, we never locked our doors either. The doors unlocked, and sh- she goes in, and she finds the uh, Tamika and Marla, the, the two young kids, uh, asleep in the in the bed. And she she tried to wake them up, and she said it was you know it was really hard to wake them up. But when she did wake them up, the girls became hysterical. Uh, when one of them walked out and saw another body and they became hysterical and she saw the bodies and they run out of the house and they call the police. Uh, the, after the crime scene was work, et cetera. And I used to do this too. I would bring in family relatives, people that knew them well and say, Hey, is there anything missing? And he's trying to establish some kind of motive, right? Well, family members said that there were several items missing from the house, including Jerry Cole's uh, wallet, a jar of loose change, food stamps, and this is very important, y'all, in, in the investigation later on, food stamps, and a food stamp ID card. Now, back then, y'all, food stamps, grub stubs, whatever you want to call them, they were actual stamps, and, and there were no debit cards yeah. Put yourself back in this time from 1985. No debit cards, and you had to actually go to the store and tear off your stamp to pay for your food. Uh, also missing from the house were pictures of the young girls that were still alive and a striped tote bag. Now, there was no money found in the house either. But, uh, although through the investigation, they, the cops learned that Vivian Cheney had cashed a check the day before for a hundred bucks. Now a hundred bucks back in, in 85 is like a thousand dollars today. It was a lot of money. So, well, Dr. McCormick had to get called out to the scene again. Remember he's the coroner for Caddo Parish. And he's, he's like, again, look, this, you know, this crime was committed by one person and it's definitely a serial killer and he's working alone. And, you know, he told him, said, serial killers not only kill uh, over and over again, but their crimes escalate, right? And McCormick thought that this crime scene was an escalation on Deborah Ford's murder and that they were committed by the same person. So he also said, you know, this dude probably lives in the neighborhood and could be among the crowds that gather at these homicide scenes. Well, that comes into play later on too, y'all. Um, he said that the this this murder scene was an indication of the progression of, of the serial killer, and as he you know went between all the different victims in the house, and that he had used a gun uh, to control 
the victims. I obviously went in and he shot the two males, and but then he's Doctor McCormick saying, "Hey, he had to use the, the gun to control the rest of the victims." Remember, he made the mom watch why he murdered the daughter uh, and all that. So Doctor McCormick also said that the you know like like I told you that the the killer had threatened Carlitha's life to mobilize Vivian Cheney and Billy Joe Harris. Now, Vivian Cheney was tied so she could walk, I told you about, and Carlitha's hands were tied. And, and after tying up Billy Joe Harris, the killer shot him through the pillow to prevent uh, to start uh, to stop waking up Jerry Colbert, who was in the back bedroom. Jerry Colbert is the one I told you who was shot while he slept. And he said that the, the murderer then cut Carlitha's throat but didn't kill her. And that's when he made Vivian Cheney sit down in her daughter's blood uh, before he took her to the bathroom and killed her by strangling her and drowning her. Now, I've been doing this a long time, y'all, and I've never had that combination, okay? It, after he, he strangles and drowns her, he go, he returns to the living room where Carlith is and— uh, he appeared that he moved her, and he finished killing her by trying to, guess what, decapitate her. Same thing as four, right? And, uh, he, oh, Billy Joe Harris, even though he had shot him, he, he after the fact, and they were able to savage this by uh, blood, not having a huge amount of blood uh, where it happened, he, he returns to Billy Joe Harris and stabs him in the neck. One more time, yeah. Whoa, I'm gonna make sure he's double dead, right? Even though you already shot him. All right, so the cops come in, do what they do, and they're investigating the scene, um, and they find pieces of duct tape, which were consistent with the type to, uh, used to gag Carlita Cheney in the alley behind the Cheney's house. That they found the duct tape in the alley behind the Cheney house, and and they found the duct tape on Carlita Cheney, right? And they they appeared to be the same. Now, they processed the crime scene. Now, there was no DNA back then, y'all. It, it, you're looking for hairs and you know prints and everything else, and they found three laden left palm prints on the bathtub over. Uh, where Vivian Cheney's body was draped. I remember she she was drowned and strangled. And Dr. McCormick said again that the the killer was right-handed and he had used his, his dominant hand, his right hand, to hold her head underwater while he steadied himself with his left hand against the wall. And that's where the fresh prints had uh, were lifted, the palm prints, okay? And... It's just crazy. They just totally, totally crazy. So there was a guy um, named Oscar Washington. Now, he was in the Louisiana National Guard, and he was out jogging, right, at at 2.15 a.m. in the morning uh, by the intersections of Henderson Street and 72nd and 73rd Street. And as he was jogging, he sees this dude, right? Well, he knows the guy. I'm not going to tell you his name yet. And he knew him from the neighborhood. And they spoke for a few minutes, and the this guy was telling Washington that, hey, yeah, man, I'm going, you know, 
I'm going to go attend to some business, right? And then Washington notices that the guy has a little brown paper bag rolled up under his arm. And Washington didn't think much about it. You know, he chatted with him for a second and, and continued his run down the street. About 45 minutes later, he's still running, right? Getting his jog on. And he's coming back through, and he again sees the same guy on on at the same intersection, right? And But this time, the dude's covered in blood, and he's headed south on Henderson Street. And, and Washington's like, hey, bro, what happened? You know, are you okay? What happened? And the guy says, uh, I, I got into it with somebody, and I came out on top. And, you know, I got even. So uh, Washington noticed that that this, the, the guy who's still covered in blood was carrying a peppermint striped bag. And the guy was like, hey, dude, to Washington, he said, um, um, you want to buy some stuff? And, and he opens the bag and he shows him. And he was like, you buy this knife? And uh, Washington really kind of, you know, described it as a dagger and not so much a knife. He said it was, it was um, a dagger with a seven to eight inch blade. Guess what? Also inside was a pistol. He was like, bro, you want to buy the pistol? And also in the bag were credit cards. Bro, you want to buy the credit cards? Also in the bag, some food stamps. You want to buy some food stamps? And some weed. And But when Washington's looking at the bag, he, he's, you know, he's, Looking at the items the guy wants to sell, the food stamps were covered in blood. All right. So a couple days go by, and Washington's uh, in, the, in the neighborhood walking down the street, and, the, and this guy comes up to him, the same guy that was covered in the blood, said, I got even, try to sell him uh, items and all that. He goes up to him, and, and he says, Hey, bro. He said, uh, What'd you see me do? And Washington was like, I, bro, I don't know what you're talking about. And the, and the guy was like, you know, what'd you see me do? He said, bro, I didn't see you do anything. And Washington noticed that the guy was gritting his teeth and he balled up his fist. Very important. Uh, comes into play later on. So at this, on that same night, a, a neighbor that lived close by in the neighborhood saw the same guy that was covered in blood um, that Washington saw covered in blood and tried to sell him the items on the street. He had seen him standing on the corner of Henderson Street and 72nd Street looking into the Cheney house at 5.30 a.m. on July 19th. And, y'all, this was just before the bodies were discovered. And remember, Dr. McCormick said, this is serial killer. He's, he's probably in these crowds watching the, the, you know, the crime scenes. You know, anytime a murder's happening in a hood like that or anywhere, the, any neighborhood, the people are going to come out. The, uh, the crime scene tape's going to be up. You're going to wonder about your neighbors. You know, yeah, I've worked a thousand of them, and, and people are, are standing around watching, and they watch until the body bags come out and all that. And then, you know, Better than anything they've ever seen on TV. I hate to say better, but more interesting or whatever. So the, you know what? 
I, I'm, I'm going to stop right there. This y'all, this dude killed so many people in, I'm not going to tell you the name yet because it's, if you've heard of it before, I'll be shocked. And Leah Marie, this is one that I don't know why I didn't know about because he is Louisiana's worst serial killer. And y'all, we've had a lot. You think Derek Todd Lee, you think Sean Vincent Gillis, where these are the ones that people know about since social media came around. Um, you know, this dude, this dude defines serial killer. Now the FBI is going to get involved in it and the profiling. This is in the beginning of profiling. Um, and I'm going to tell you about all that, but the murders aren't over with, y'all. This dude's just getting started. And uh, I'm going to tell you about the rest of the murders, and it's going to kind of freak you out on, on the things that I'm going to tell you so you'll be warned on the next episode. But it's all real, real deal. Um, and I'm going to give you the forewarning. On the next episode, I'm going to go into some more graphic, graphic, graphic details. All right. So I'm going to stop it right there. I want to say that I love and appreciate each and every one of y'all. And our patron members, convicts, Apple subscribers, uh, I hope you are enjoying your bonus episodes. And guess what? From now on, all Patreon episodes, uh, the ones that are locked in the vault, will also be video recorded and have the capability now. We did it on the last episode. Um, everybody, it got an overwhelming response. Y'all loved it. And so, you, you know, I guess I need to do more video. In Real Life Real Crime, a lot of big stuff coming, y'all. The TV stuff is still in the works. I'll tell you about it as soon as I can. In Real Life Real Crime Daily, y'all, that's the show I do with Jim Chavin and Mike Agavino. A totally different than real life or crime drops four days a week. And naturally we've changed the original real life or crime from Tuesdays to Saturdays. Like I used to do it. Uh, but anyway, Patreon convicts and subscribers appreciate y'all so much. And we're going to be doing more and more and more episodes than I've ever done in the past. Uh, this story's already there, and there will be audio and video recorded. If you can't be a Patreon member or convict, I, pre- I, I get it. Love you just as much. Thank you for listening, liking, and sharing. Y'all go check out the Real Life Real Crime Community app in the App Store. It's free. And I get these messages every day from people that are hurting and want me to work those family their family's cases, and I get that, y'all. But the if you're going to send me information please send it to Woody at realliferealcrime.com with as much information as you have. I'll be honest with you. If, if, if you know, I, a lot of times I don't get to a lot of the Facebook pages and stuff like that to days later, and I do get to them eventually, but I go to the Real Life Real Crime community app first thing every morning and every time I log in throughout the day, and then I'll go to the Real Life Real Crime crew page and stuff like that, kind of in that order. But you know, if you're going to ask me to, to look at a cold case, I'm asking you to provide me with all the information that you can to Woody at RealLifeRealCrime.com. Now, swim the podcast. That shit's still happening. It's this. Unfortunately, this is a business, and things have to be worked out. Uh, hashtag Justice for the all you people who are out there hurting 
and sending me these stories about your family members, the ones that are serious about them, send me the full caseloads, et cetera. I'm going to do a podcast where I highlight these cases now and we'll have the tip line for all of them, just like we do Miss Barbara Blunt's and the, the, I'm going to give the face to the victims, okay, and tell these stories because most of them aren't known. Like 99% of them y'all send to me I've never heard of, all right? So it's 2024 is going to be a fire year for us. The we got more things starting than we've ever started. Um, now, SWIM and Hashtag Justice 4 will not be on the Real Life Real Crime feed. They're going to be totally separate from Real Life Real Crime, totally independent shows. Um, the TV stuff, Totally independent, and and but you'll, I'll explain more to you as as it goes along. I know y'all get tired of me saying, "Hey, this is going to start and it doesn't happen." Well, I get these genius ideas, and then the legal powers that be or whatever fuck it up, and the from the business side, and then I have to wait for certain things to happen. But stick with me. Um, I know this story is different, y'all, but you, Louisiana's worst serial killer. Holy shit. And, and the fact that I had never heard of them is why I want to tell a story. I think everybody needs to know about it. I guarantee the people in Shreveport, Louisiana, know about it. Um, but that's it. And LOPA, Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency, y'all, they're a nonprofit. They save lives every day. If you're a lifer from Timbuktu, and you want to become an organ donor, go to lopa.org, take two minutes, fill out the questionnaire, and become an organ donor. Chances that they ever use your organs to save anyone else's life are very slim. There's a lot of qualifying circumstances for that to have to happen. Um, but there are people dying every single day waiting on an organ transplant. And if, if you or in the state where your organs can be used, why not give it to somebody else? I'm, I I know people. I've talked to so many people. I got to hunt with um, Reese's one young man uh, who died, and he had become an organ donor shortly before his death, and the, his organs went to a guy that I got to hunt with, right, who's alive today because that Reese was a hero. So y'all go sign up to be an organ donor and stick with us. we got a lot of stuff coming on. Um, a lot of different things happening this year. And I'm Woody Overton, your host of Real Life Real Crime, the podcast. And until next time or ever, don't let me catch you down on Murder Bayou. Peace. Yeah, the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. You have a right to an attorney prior to or during any question. If you can't afford one, the court will appoint one for you. Do you understand your rights? When the wolf is at your door, you run in zone that.
everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.